Our Bishop Thomas Tobin wrote a column in the November 10th issue of the Rhode Island Catholic entitled, Don't Ask, Don't Tell, Don't Sin. In it, he did nothing surprising. He, first of all, reiterated the Catholic Church's timeless teaching on the issue of homosexuality, a teaching which is firmly rooted in sacred scripture and the natural law. He also criticized those activists and politicians and others out there in the world right now who are doing their best to force everyone in our society to accept homosexuality and the homosexual lifestyle as normal and moral. And finally, he challenged Catholics, individual Catholics, to stand up for the truth, especially in the public square, and to do their best to help people they know who are experiencing same-sex attraction to follow the path of virtue in their lives. Our bishop said, if you really love someone, you have an obligation to challenge their sinful ways and encourage them to follow a more virtuous path. In the final paragraph of the piece, he summed up his message with these words. Members of the Church, particularly those in positions of authority, bishops, priests, deacons, catechists, and especially parents, have an obligation to understand and present what we believe about the sinful nature of homosexual acts. We have an equally important obligation to foster respect for persons with same-sex attraction. We should love them, respect them, pray with them, and welcome them into our churches. But we do them a grave disservice if we do not urge them to embrace a lifestyle marked by the Christian virtues of chastity and purity. Well, the following week, a letter opposing the bishop appeared in our diocesan newspaper. It was written by a man named Henry Miller, who lives in Youngstown, Ohio. I'm not sure how he got a copy of the Rhode Island Catholic, but he did. Maybe he read the online version. Listen now to a few of the things that Mr. Miller said in that letter. Now, as to whether, as the bishop suggests, we have an obligation to challenge their, that is, gays, sinful ways, and encourage them to follow a more virtuous path, I can't imagine the bishop has actually thought this advice through. It suggests that we be adversarial, and that could lead to our being punched in the nose. After all, who are we to judge who is living a sinful life and who is not? Not everyone who is living a homosexual life is committing a sin if he or she believes he is not. This is second-grade moral theology, which we later learned as adults is called primacy of conscience. I'll leave aside the remark about being punched in the nose. As far as I'm concerned, that's too ridiculous and juvenile to even merit a comment. But what about his other point here, which is really the key point, the crucial point of his letter? I hope that you were horrified when you heard those words a few moments ago. Listen again to what this man said. 
Not everyone who is living a homosexual life is committing a sin if he or she believes he is not. Say what, Mr. Miller? I hope you're not serious, but I'm afraid you are. Are you telling me, sir, that if I think something is right, that fact alone makes it right? Are you telling me that the ultimate criterion for a morally good act is whether or not I personally believe it's a morally good act? I certainly hope not, Mr. Miller, because that means that anything, and I mean anything, even the grossest moral evil, can be justified. Let me now illustrate the absurdity of Mr. Miller's statement by replacing homosexual activity with a few other sins. How's this one? Not everyone who intentionally flies a passenger plane into a skyscraper in New York City is committing a sin. If he or she believes he is not, puts a little different twist on it, doesn't it? How about this one? Not everyone who rapes is committing a sin, if he or she believes he is not. Or this one. Not everyone who steals millions of dollars through a Ponzi scheme is committing a sin, if he or she believes he is not. And one more. Not everyone who murders innocent people is committing a sin if he or she believes he is not. What Mr. Miller calls the primacy of conscience is really the primacy of a badly formed conscience. He says this is second grade moral theology. Well, if that's the case, Mr. Miller, you need to go back to kindergarten and start learning your moral theology lessons from scratch. Of course, the really scary thing is, my brothers and sisters, this guy is not alone. There are a lot of people, and I dare say even some Catholics and Christians among them, who think this way. And we wonder why the world is in such a mess. This is the kind of mentality that breaks up families and societies and nations. It tears them apart. When your teenage son or daughter comes to you and says, Mom, Dad, this is how I want to live my life, and you'd better say amen to it. And they do that sometimes in various forms. This is the, that mentality, the same mentality. I'll bet you don't say amen. You say, that's not the way it works, dear. And you're right to say that. This is also the kind of mentality that keeps many Catholics away from confession. Each and every Advent, we encounter John the Baptist in our Gospels. John the Baptist, the precursor of the Messiah, who appeared in the desert proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as we heard a few moments ago in that Gospel text from Mark 1. Now that passage goes on to say that people from the Judean countryside and from Jerusalem itself all went to the Jordan River to be baptized by John as they, quote, acknowledged their sins, end of quote. It doesn't say they acknowledged the things that they felt were sins. 
or the things that they believed were sins, as if they themselves had the power to determine what was right and what was wrong. It simply says they acknowledged their sins, indicating that there was an objective moral standard that they knew they had violated in some way. They didn't determine what that standard was. God did. It was built into the very fabric of reality as God had created it, as God had designed it. Jesus Christ came into this world to save us from our sins. His name literally means Savior. His name tells us not only who he was, but what he did. But he can only do that, he can only save us from our sins if we acknowledge them, as the people who went to the Jordan River to receive John's baptism acknowledged their sins. And we need to acknowledge our sins as they are, not as we would like them to be. Now that's difficult. How do I know that? Because I'm a sinner. You think I like to acknowledge my sins? It's not fun. It's not pleasant. But it's reality because I'm a sinner. But you see, doing this too is also, it's tough, but it's liberating. It's freeing. Because when we do this, when we acknowledge our sins, repent of our sins, receive forgiveness from God for our sins, we can finally put those things behind us forever and ever and ever. We encounter John the Baptist every Advent to remind us that the best way we can possibly prepare to receive Jesus Christ more fully into our lives at Christmas is through the repentance of our sins, by repenting for our sins. To assist you in this task, this Advent, I've inserted a very good and very thorough examination of conscience into this weekend's bulletin. Another reason to take your bulletin home with you. Please do not leave it in the pew. On that sheet is God's objective standard concerning what's right and what's wrong. It's not my standard. It's not your standard. It's not the standard of Mr. Miller, the guy who wrote that letter I read from earlier. It's not even the standard, personal standard of Bishop Tobin. It's the Lord's and his alone. Which means that it's the truth that will set us free. Free from our guilt, free from our sadness, and most especially, free from the eternal consequences of whatever it is we've done. And I mean whatever. Because God can forgive anything. But it will only do that for us, my brothers and sisters, if we have the courage, the guts, to look at our lives honestly in light of what's written on that sheet and then repent, making a good confession if we need to. For those who are interested in doing that, I will be in my confessional next Saturday at 3.30, as I always am, every week. And then on the following Saturday, for your convenience, Father Judice and I will be here for two solid hours from 2.30 until 4.30 p.m. Hope to see many of you there. I'd like to think I might see Mr. Miller, but I'm not holding my breath.